despise the weak people who think they're safe. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that, so that you are not to do whatever you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. You may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed. And Dusty left me some gifts here at the front of the stage. So let's give them away. Uh, who would like a copy of Live No Lies? All the way in the back. Candy? Jericho, can you can you run this back there for her? I know you raised your hand, but whatever. Uh, anybody want a Bible? Somebody want a Bible this morning? Free. There it is. All right, Tegan Styles. Free Bible. If you have this memorized, by next week I'll take you to TIY for free. Okay. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, we are in week two of a series called Live No Lies. If you... Um, if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that online if you can, because these stack, um, these messages, it's important that you understand one step uh, in tandem with the next. It doesn't mean that you can't hear this one. I'm not asking you to get up and leave church this morning, uh, but they do stack. It's, it's going to be helpful information. And so where we kind of um, landed the plane last week are, is centered around these three ideas, that, that we are at war. There is a war for our soul, and we do not fight against flesh and blood, as Paul would say, but we fight against lies. We fight against the deceiver, the enemy. Um, the the uh, scriptures would call him the diabolos, right? We would say the devil. And so we are at war. We're at war with lies, and it's not so much that we tell lies. It's that we live them. We talked about this idea that we have these mental maps, these this wayfinding within our own minds that direct us where we think the destinations are that we hope to arrive at, but oftentimes our mental maps are confused or clouded or there's a, a, a degree of difference there that is contrary to God's word. And so we need to check our mental maps against the scriptures to ensure that where we hope to arrive at, life and joy and peace and happiness, prosperity in the way that Jesus defines it, is actually where we're headed. We're at war, and it's not so much that we tell lies, it's that we live them. We have three great enemies of our souls, and they are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That is an age-old 
paradigm, a way that the church has thought about these enemies of our peace for centuries now. And we've flipped that in reverse order. It's what John Mark Comer does in his book. And we started last week with deceptive ideas. Deceptive ideas. And this week, we will jump to the next portion of that. It's deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires, which are then normalized in a sinful society. Deceptive ideas which play to our disordered desires, which are then normalized in a sinful society. I bet you can't guess what we'll talk about next week. Um, we're going to begin with a quote this morning, which is pretty heady. It's, it's very wordy. It's sort of old English, but I, I need you to dig in for a minute and try your best to, to hear this quote very well, because from it, the dominant thought of our morning will come. This is Sir Edmund Burke. Here's what he says, men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites. Following? Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere. And the less of it there is within, the more of it there must be without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. I want to focus on the, the last line of that quote. Their passions forge their fetters. A fetter is simply a shackle. Shackle. We sang that word in the hymn that we just sang, Come Thou Fount. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Let your goodness shackle me to you, is what that's saying. And so here's what Edmund Burke would say, is because we as mankind have such disordered desires, there must be some element of constraint placed upon us, and here's what we think we're good at. We think we're good at self-discipline and self-control, when in reality, we are all terrible at it. We must have some form of constraint that holds us to the line, holds us in the direction of the mental map that we are to be on. Our passions forge our fetters. Oftentimes, it is our sin that shackles us and makes us slaves. So we begin this morning by talking about the flesh. We read in this passage in Galatians chapter 5 that there's a war happening between the spirit and and the flesh, the spirit of God at work in the life of the believer, and the flesh that is fallen and sinful and often leads to our misery, a war between spirit and flesh. And so let's talk about the flesh. Some of you may remember a, um, a famous quote from a filmmaker named Woody Allen, and he's being interviewed shortly after it, it came to light that he was having a relationship with a woman significantly younger than him, soon me present. And in that interview, they asked him why he was engaged in that kind of relationship. And he delivers this famous line, and it's simply this. The heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. And that's a statement that has not only entered the vernacular of our society, but the very belief system. It's sort of like the statement, boys will be boys, right? Like we kind of throw that blanket statement out there, giving excuse to whatever young men want to do these days, when in reality they just mean idiots. The heart wants what it wants. Not only a statement that has entered our vernacular, but the very belief system of, this, of our society. And the New Testament would say that the flesh wants what it wants. Heart as we use it in that instance, really a better translation would be flesh. 
Deceptive ideas are what gives birth to disordered desires. Again, it's not deceptive ideas in general. It's lies that play to what we want to live out. Deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires. And so Satan's not whispering in our ear, hey, don't listen to that. It's not for you. Right? (laughs) It doesn't matter. It's inconsequential to who we are as people. What he is doing is using elements of truth to play to some deep fissure of the human heart that is bent in the wrong direction. Porn is a normal, healthy part of growing up. There's nothing wrong with it. How would you know how to have sex if you don't watch somebody do it first? That's a lie. It's a deceptive idea that plays to our disordered desires. It's also one of the things that I can say that makes this room quiet in no time at all. We have carpet on this floor, but I could hear a pin drop. Flesh, flesh is at war with the spirit, and flesh is the corruption that sin has introduced into our very appetites and instincts. Eugene Peterson would say it this way. Basically, it's our base, primal, animalistic drive for self-gratification, especially pertaining to sensuality, as in sex and food, but also to pleasure in general, as well as our instincts for survival, domination, and the need for For centuries now, scholars and church fathers have been describing this war between the flesh and the spirit as a charioteer with two different horses. One, the flesh, the other is the spirit, trying to run in two different directions and therefore getting nowhere. One horse called a lover of honor with modesty and self-control, while the other was a companion to wild boasts and indecency. Shaggy around the ears, deaf as a post, and just barely yields to horsewhip and goad. Charles Taylor, in his book, A Secular Age, says this, that the West has changed from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. The West has changed from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. We used to live by external authority structures, God, the Bible, church, school, institutions in general, And they would tell us what to do and how to live. But now most people in a Western society live by an internal narrative. If it feels good, it must be good. The heart wants what it wants. In the Augustinian view, Augustine was an early church father and wrote many profound and wonderful things. He said this, the problem with the human condition isn't that we don't love. It's that we love either the wrong things or the right things in the wrong order. We know what love is based on the actions we take. And listen, when you love your football team more than Jesus, it shows. Because actions follow affections. Mental maps help us to navigate lesser desires and greater desires. In other words, desires that fulfill us versus desires that leave us longing to be If your mental map is good, it will help you say no to the things that will allow you to have power in your desires. There's a famous line, another one from a play by Shakespeare, a play called Hamlet, and many of you are probably familiar with it. And there's a line in in that uh, text that, that says this, above all else to thine own self be true. It's where we get be true to yourself. Be true to yourself is the battle cry for our society today. Be true to yourself. There's no more important thing you could do, no more 
moral things and to be true to yourself and allow others to be true to themselves. Above all else, to thine own self be true comes from a character in Shakespeare's play Hamlet known as Polonius the Fool. Polonius the Fool is the one who encourages us to be true to ourselves. In the past, it was the responsibility of all people to restrain the desires of the flesh, and today it's the right of people to follow the desires of their authentic selves. Here's what Jonathan Grant in the book Divine Sex says. Modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality, the only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we could do is conform to some moral code that is imposed on us by an outside society, our parents, the church, whoever else. It is deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. The authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves or must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. And therefore, the good life has become about getting what we want not about becoming the kinds of people who want truly good things. The good life has become about getting what we want, not about becoming the kinds of people who want truly good things. So in this view, theology, or what we believe and think about God, just becomes therapy. The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness. Holiness by wholeness, truth by feeling, ethics by feeling good about oneself. The world shrinks to the range of personal circumstances. The community of faith shrinks to a circle of personal friends. The past recedes, the church recedes, the world recedes. All that remains is death. This is what we've become in our society. And friends, make no mistake, it seeps into our church. The most important person in the world is We allow this kind of thinking, this morality, the heart wants what it wants, to thine own self be true, to affect even our theology. We start to shape our relationship with God or our understanding of the Bible through one specific lens and bent. How does it help me? Friends, church is not self-help. It's not therapy. It's not a... It's not a session with a psychologist. I don't get paid enough for that. Friends, we gather here to worship God, to orient our entire lives around him, to say, above all else, I will be true to you. We don't gather here so we can feel good about ourselves. We don't gather here demanding to be fed and catered to and served. We gather here because there's a God who's worthy of our worship. And because God is worthy of our worship, we are compelled by his love to serve one another and minister to one another. That is what church is. And so we've talked about the flesh. The flesh is at war with our spirit, and it is our passions, our disordered desires that forge our fetters. Let's talk about freedom. Pleasure, as we talked about last week, is a deceptive idea most of us tap into, that pleasure is the path to happiness. And so we're just continually in this cycle of pleasing ourselves. What's the next hit, the next amount of pleasure I can find that will make me feel something? 
But pleasure as ultimate purpose cannot support the weight of the entirety of one's life. If pleasure is all we exist to experience, then we must avoid pain and hardship and self-denial at all costs. We must construct a worldview and a religion that allows us to steer clear of anything that doesn't provide us pleasure. The problem is that this isn't reality. This is unreality. Pain is a more natural and reoccurring part of life than pleasure is. It's tenfold. And this way of life cannot bear the weight of reality, so we crumble when the life we experience is not the one we have mapped in our minds. Life should be about finding what makes me feel good. That's a mental map. And what happens when reality doesn't correspond with that map in our minds? We break. Self becomes the ultimate pursuit. Self is the new God, the new morality, but this puts a crushing weight on ourselves, one that we were never designed to bear. It must discover itself, become itself, stay true to itself, justify itself, make itself happy, perform and defend its fragile identity. This is why Paul says, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The ultimate sin in our world today is to not follow your heart. The ultimate sin in our world today is to not follow your heart. If you're not doing what makes you happy, then you're living the wrong kind of life. And the pressure to perform is exhausting. When you're both the one seeking to be validated and doing the validating of yourself, you either live defeated or delusional. You either feel like a perpetual failure or you change the rules of the game in your own mind to not feel that failure. But instead, you make failure part of your true self. When self is the new God, the new religion, the new validation mechanism, it stands in direct opposition to the teachings of Jesus. In a world where desire is sacred and unchallengeable, the ultimate sin is to not follow your heart. Theologian and author Cornelius Plantinga says this, in such a culture, the self exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. So here's the ultimate rub. When when people tell you to follow your heart, which heart do you follow? And what do we do when our hearts are fickle and our our desires change by the hour and fluctuate with our needs? If we're always just living based on the impulse of our desire, which heart do we follow? See, there there are things that are simultaneously true. I want to look like Thor. I also want to eat ice cream every night. (laughs) Anyone else have that battle, that internal struggle? I want to be radically generous. I want to be content. I don't want to want for other things. I also, I want that new pair of shoes I saw online. I want to buy a 2022 Tundra, a black one. I want to lift it about three inches. I want to put like bronze wheels on it with some oversized tires. That's what I want. And there's this war, this internal struggle. Which heart do I follow? Because mm, I, I really want to be faithful to Jesus. I also want to look lustfully at that woman at work. Our strongest desires are usually not actually our deepest desires. 
in the moment of temptation, the raging fire of the desire that is your flesh, the desire to make a condescending comment about your friend, to buy another pair of shoes you don't need, to overeat, to overdrink, to lust, to ignore God, to watch Netflix instead of reading your Bible, it feels overwhelming and almost irresistible. As if something or someone else has possessed your physical body and you're now just on autopilot. Your strongest desires are not often your deepest desires. The truest desires of your heart, they don't come from the bedrock of your soul. They are simply what is winning right Giving in to the desires of our flesh does not lead to the freedom and life that so many people attempt to have. Instead, it leads to slavery and addiction, which is actually suicide and pleasure. Most ethicists define happiness as a kind of contentment, a soul-level satisfaction where you are grateful for what is rather than grasping for more, which means this, happiness comes as the result of disciplined desire. Happiness comes as the result of disciplined desire. Again, back to our text this morning. Here's how Paul begins this chapter 5 to the church in Galatia. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You, my brothers and sisters, he continues, We're called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Remember, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. And so for Paul, the opposite of indulging the flesh is loving our neighbor. The opposite of responding to our disordered desires is to get our attention off of ourselves, to focus it on other people. Love in this sense is the self-giving love as God himself defines. I love this definition of love, a compassionate commitment to delight in the soul of, not a mother, another, and to will that person's good ahead of your own, no matter the cost to yourself. A compassionate commitment to delight in the soul of another and to will that person's good ahead of your own no matter the cost to yourself. If love is to do, if love is to will the good of another person, notice that we must know what, what is good for people and we must know what is good for ourselves. Anybody fight this war at home with your kids? If you left it up to your children, if you left, well, not even yours, if you left it up to my children, what would they do all day? They'd watch Bluey They'd eat Pop-Tarts, and they'd throw all of their toys everywhere if I left it up to them. Now, if I said, I just want my kids to be true to themselves. I want them to find happiness, and for whatever they need to do to find happiness, that's good for them. You'd look at me and say, Dylan, you're stupid. How are we employing you on the church staff right now? No, we all as parents in that moment know that what our kids want to do and what's best for them are often two totally different things. And so we make our kids sit at the table and finish their vegetables, gosh darn it. That's what's good for them. And friends, if you're going to love other people well, you have to understand what is good for them. If your mind is mapped towards a destination that you hope to arrive at, but your directions are all wrong, and you try to share that with someone else, here's how I'm finding happiness. 
and it does not correspond at all to God's word, you are leaving that person incomplete. The flesh is anti-love. And when we live by the mental maps that, that flesh-fueled desires create, other humans, listen, other humans either become objects of or obstacles to your desires. That's the opposite of loving your neighbor. When we live by mental maps that flesh-fueled desires create, other humans either become objects to excuse me, objects of or obstacles to your desires. This is why Augustine says this, that sin is love turned in on itself. Sin is depositing love on an object that is not ultimately yours. So here's what Paul says. I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you, listen, you are not to do whatever you want. If there's anything we should not do, it's whatever we want. Let me say that one more time, because like this is, this is the pivotal moment. If there's anything we should not do, it's whatever we want. Men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their ability to take pains upon their own appetites. Our passions forged our fetters and when we continually give in and gratify the flesh and the desires of our sinful nature we are enslaving ourselves to them so corrupting ourselves and the people around us because we are no longer capable of love we've turned love in on itself and so we we love to talk about freedom I love freedom. We love to talk about freedom in our country, in our state, and like whatever it is. We love to talk about freedom, but freedom as outlined in the biblical text is different than what we might think. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And there's two different types of freedom. The first is this, negative freedom or freedom from. It's the removal of any and all constraints on our choices. Here's the, here's the most accurate description of negative freedom. It's from a kid's movie, but you all know this line. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And I call her Elsa, the fool. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And this view of freedom arises out of a postmodern worldview that has no belief in moral absolutes or any ultimate meaning to life beyond personal happiness. In this view, the opposite of freedom is constraint. Whether it comes from an external authority like the Bible or a binding commitment like marriage, freedom in this sense is permission to do whatever we want. And most of us, many of us, walk around in this life thinking I'm free and so I can do whatever it is I want. But this is not the definition of freedom that the biblical authors use. Now they would use a positive freedom, freedom for Freedom for is not just the permission to choose, but the power to choose to do what is good. See, freedom from our flesh to leave our sinful desires behind means to no longer live under the compulsion of them. I'm no longer living in response, impulsively just responding to my flesh-filled desires. I am choosing to do what is good. 
I am choosing to please God. That's freedom. Freedom to choose to do what's good. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And where the sin and where sin and the flesh would have you make a decision based on desire, you now have the spirit of God within you to choose to do what is good and right and holy. We want to be free. But we don't need freedom to do whatever we want. We need freedom from our disordered desires, from our state animal appetites, so that we can actually be happy so that we can actually live lives worth living. Like there is a you in Jesus. And chances are you do not like the you that is in Jesus. Because that you is formed and shaped by the response to that compulsion. It's not ruled by the spirit of God. It, it says yes to all the things you've grown to hate, but somehow cannot take to the curb. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I find myself doing the things I ought not to do, and I'm doing the very things that I hate doing, as if I have no power over myself. This wouldn't be a sermon at community without a Tim Keller quote, so here's one for us. We see that freedom is not what the culture tells us. Real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. It is not the absence of constraints, but it is choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to use. Bailey and I walked out of college with some student loans. Anybody student loans people? Yeah, most of us, okay? And between the two of us, we did okay. We had about $35,000 in student loans. Now, that's a significant amount of money uh, for two young people who didn't make a whole lot of money at the time we knew that it would continue to snowball and become a bigger and bigger issue as our expenses increased. And so what was limiting in that season could be far more limiting in this season. And so we decided let's buckle down and let's pay these off. And so in a matter of a few short years, we got out from under the weight of our student loan debt. Because we wanted to say yes to things later, we had to say no in the now. And we went without we said no to a lot of things, a lot of impulsive desires, a lot of things that we would want to buy in the moment so that we could get out from under the weight of that financial burden. Freedom comes from a strategic loss of certain freedoms in order to gain others. And there are constraints on your life, and you can actually love having them even though they are restrictive. Constraints have the power to set me free from the tyranny of my own flesh. My marriage is a constraint, but it's one that I welcome it. It's a covenant commitment that pushes me away from the sinful nature of my flesh and forces me to be faithful to my wife. I'm not always perfect, but I have a goal. I have a target. I have a constraint in place that I'm choosing to fulfill. The power of my yes comes from the frequency of my no. And we're bad at saying no. We say yes to all kinds of things all the time. So what kind of future can we count on? Our flesh and freedom, the flesh and the spirit, they're at war with one another. So here's what's true. We make our decisions and then our decisions make us. You are becoming who you will be forever. 
Here's the law of returns. Every cause has an effect. And every effect is, uh, excuse me, not every effect, but most effects are disproportionate to that cause. Here's how Paul would say it in Galatians chapter 6, one chapter from where we are now. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. For a man will reap whatever he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Sowing seed either in sin or the spirit is not static, but dynamic. We make our decisions and then they make us. Here's another quote from Cornelius Plantinga. No matter what we sow, the law of returns applies. Good or evil, love or hate, justice or tyranny, grapes or thorns, a gracious compliment or a peevish complaint. Whatever we invest, we tend to get back with interest. Lovers are loved. Haters, hated. Forgivers usually get forgiven. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. God is not mocked, so you reap whatever you sow. David Hebb, a neuroscientist, coined the phrase, uh, cells that fire together, wire together. It's called Hebb's Law. Cells that fire together, wire together. Here's the translation. Every time you think or do something, it becomes easier to think or do that same thing over and over again. The more you repeat the process, the harder it is to break that self-perpetuating cycle. This is why it's so hard to just stop sinning. Because every time we sow into the flesh, that is, when we sin, we etch a neural pathway within our own mind into the grooves of our brain. And from there, it begins to shape and create muscle memory until we end up squarely in the New Testament definition of slavery. Or what Augustine calls the shackles of gratification. Cells that fire together, wire together. Each time you indulge the flesh, it makes it that much harder to find Because the things you do, do something to us. You are becoming whatever it is that you are doing. Activity and identity are inseparably intertwined. This is Dr. Eric Fromm from a book called The Heart of Man. This will be hard to read on the screen, so I'm sorry. Each step in life, which increases my self-confidence, my integrity, my courage, my conviction, also increases my capacity to choose the desirable alternative until eventually it becomes more difficult for me to choose the undesirable rather than the desirable action. On the other hand, each act of surrender and cowardice weakens me, opens the path for more acts of surrender, and eventually freedom is lost. Between the extreme that I can no longer do a wrong act and the extreme when I have lost my freedom to right action, there are innumerable degrees of freedom available. We find ourselves living under compulsion, living in response to disordered desire that Satan is catering to deceptive ideas. Those who belong to Jesus have crucified their flesh. Those who belong to Jesus keep in step with his spirit, are eager to receive the constraints, to sit down with God's word and say, here's the map that I have in my mind, but it is likely wrong. And so shape me. Show me, lead me in a direction that leads to a destination I hope to arrive at. Friends, our passions forge our fetters. We become slaves to our sins by indulging repeatedly in them. And so how do we break free? I want to give you three things to break us free. 
three things that you can do this week every single day. And don't tell me you have time. Everyone has the same amount of time in the day. Everyone can find the time to do these things. You can spend 10 minutes in the Word this week. 10 minutes reading your Bible. Receiving truth. You can spend 10 minutes in prayer. Just talking to God. Being honest about the places you find yourself. Being honest about the desires that are derailing your life. And you can spend 10 minutes in silence. Choosing to be quiet before God. You don't have to spend those all back to back to back. 10 Three different 10-minute periods throughout your day. 10 minutes in the Word, 10 minutes in prayer, and 10 minutes in silence. It's doable for everyone, and here's what I promise you. That as you start to sow into the Spirit, the kind of life that you long for is the one you will